0: Welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute podcast number 11, episode number 3 of the Hummy Man interviews. My name is Jed Brockie, and in this podcast, I'll be discussing how Hummy gradually moved his way up to the upper echelons of Hollywood, including working with Rob Reiner, Mark Shaman, and Mel Brooks. Amongst other things, Hummey will discuss the techniques needed to actually score films and TV work. He'll also be discussing the orchestration and production work he's carried out, and ultimately what it's like to be working on major Hollywood movies. So enjoy this episode. If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe. If you come over to GMI, that's the guitarmusicinstitute.com, you'll find further materials and other podcasts well worth your time downloading and listening to. As well as supplementary materials. So moving to LA, um, did that cause any particular? Was that a difficult thing? How how you get into the scene there, Hummy?
1: Oh, you know it's interesting. I don't. I, I was trying to think of all of the, um, the the exact series of events, and it was kind of uh, it's ca- it's kind of uh, hazy at this point. But let me let me remember what I can. We moved. We, we literally packed everything up into a truck. Drove all the way across the United States, Vicky, myself, and our dog. And it was funny because about halfway through, the dog didn't want to get back in the truck. I was tired <laughs> of driving the truck. Um, and we drove through a hurricane. We had a lot of fun stuff or you know, just missed the hurricane. Um, we got to L.A. We'd actually flown to L.A. a couple of weeks before and rented an apartment. So we got there. We had an apartment on the west side of Los Angeles. The daunting task of how to break into the business and how to make a living.
0: And how, so, how many how many
1: leads did you have? Active leads did you have at this point? Maybe two. You know, it was not it was it was not a huge number. I mean, basically, what had been happening is when I was on the road with that comedy show that we spoke about earlier, I was just started collecting names and phone numbers from as many people as I could, and got some good leads. I mean, one of the best leads turned out to be a gent by the name of Alf Clausen, who um, was starting to have a career as a, he, he'd been the music director of the and Marie Osmond show, if I recall correctly. And by the time I got to LA, that show was over, but he had started working in dramatic television. And um, he was orchestrating, I believe, on a show called Beauty and the Beast. And every now and then he would get overloaded and he'd call me up and I'd, I'd give him a hand. And what ended up happening is that the composer of Beauty and the Beast started working on a show called Moonlighting with uh, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis.
0: I remember it well.
1: Yeah. And what ended up happening was that uh, that that gentleman by the name of Lee Holdridge handed off the show. He, he did the theme and he did the first couple of episodes and then handed the show off to Alf. And I became Alf's uh, orchestrator. So the Al main, th- he wrote the Al song. Yes, he wrote the Al song and the theme of the show. And scored the first couple of episodes, kind of established the, the tone of the music. So Alf took that show over as the composer, and I ended up being his orchestrator. I also did some um, ghostwriting, you know, because sometimes it's too much work for one guy to do. The deadlines in television sometimes are pretty silly. So I worked with Alf on that show for, I think it's the full seven-year run. And at the end of that show, he also took on The Simpsons, which I also was working on with him. And I worked on the first couple of seasons of The Simpsons, and then I, and then I kind of managed to move into doing some orchestral, some uh, orchestration on feature films. And Alf um, you know, started working with some other people on The Simpsons, and he's still on The Simpsons to this day. So but I thought that was the,
0: the person you were talking about. Before, before you move away from that, just to sort of tease a little few things out of that, you must have had quite a good conceit of your own abilities, would that would that be right to, to put it like that? I don't. That sounds negative, but I don't mean it like that. I just mean in a business which is very difficult to crack. You must have been quite a confident person in in the work you'd already done.
1: Yeah, I felt. I mean, I felt that I was ready. You know, I mean, working with Alf. Actually, I, I left something out in between. Before I started working with Alf, there was a TV show that I got work, was working on called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It only lasted for one year. I remember going and meeting with the composer and him basically taking the the cue sheets, uh, sorry, the timing notes, which is basically, you know, the information about the pieces of music that have to be written, dividing them in half, handing me half of them, playing me the theme of the week and then saying, okay, I'll see you to the recording session. So I was kind of thrown into ghostwriting by fire. And that was before the days we we had video at home. So basically I was scoring the scenes pretty much from the timing note. Okay. So, I mean, we're getting quite technical here for
0: people that are listening in, and that's fantastic. I just wanted to know, how did you go about writing at that point? Would you write on piano, or would you write on, were you still writing with the guitar? How how would
1: you do that? Uh, pretty much, basically, when most of the writing that I do that's orchestral, I pretty much work uh, pencil and paper at the piano. And I do a lot of it, you know, not to boast, but I do a lot of it in my head and then just test out certain things that I want to, oh, I want to try this new voicing or I want to try this new, this chord progression. I mean, those kinds of things happen. I've really trained myself to have pretty good ears and be able to kind of look at things and hear them. And, and that's even, that's back then I'm talking about. Well, I was working on it. I mean, I probably, I probably used the piano more back then than I do now. Um, although now I'm kind of looking for new sounds and and, you know. Once you've done a lot of writing, you're always worried about repeating yourself. So, so
0: Hummy, for people uh, listening in who may not know that much, and without us perhaps getting too technical, can you sum up uh, in, in layman's terms what you mean by timing notes?
1: Sure. When you're working on a, a, on a television show or a movie... What you do is you watch the movie in what's called a spotting session, and you decide where the music's going to go, where it's going to start, where it's going to end, and what the dramatic purpose of that music is. And then you have the person who's called a music editor who takes that information and gives you very detailed notes about the actions, the dialogue, the, the edits in the film, so that you might know that at the beginning of a cue, which is what we call the pieces of music in a film, at the beginning of a cue, it might start on the exterior shot of a building. And then at 1.4 seconds, there's a cut to the interior shot of the building. And at 3.2 seconds, somebody enters the room. And at 5.7 seconds, that person says, how you doing, darling? And so basically, when you are writing film music, you're writing around all of these timings that you get information about. And that's how we synchronize the music to the film.
0: And that must have changed a lot since those days when you started out in the way that this is actually done and delivered.
1: Yeah. It's, I think it's it, one of the tools that really kind of made it easier for me. There were two actually specifically was VHS tapes. You know, you could actually have a copy of the film at home, which, whereas where I started it, that wasn't as common. It became much more common that you would get videotapes. And then the other thing was that there, were, instead of having to do all the mathematics, which I talked about earlier, by hand, they're all done by computer now. And so you can work on a there's a piece of software called the Oracle, and that was the the number one piece of software that just does film timings and builds what's called the click track. So when the musicians are playing the music, they're playing, and they're, they're wearing headphones, and they're hearing the equivalent of a metronome going on in their head. And that metronome can change tempos. It can it can do all kinds of things. It's all controlled by a computer now. Nowadays, people work at a sequencing program uh, where they're, they actually are inputting music into the program and hearing it back uh, locked to the picture. Uh, I don't work that way. Um, I pr- still pretty much work pencil and paper with a piano and the Oracle building my click track. But when I have to demo something for a director to show what it's going to look like, that's when I use the sequencing program. So I don't use the sequencing program when I'm writing, but I use it when I'm demonstrating.
0: So you talked about those... Um before all that, and the books and all the logs, they're quite big, aren't they, these uh, log books?
1: Oh, yeah, you remember that from this class. Before we had, before the computer, when I first got to Los Angeles, still home computers weren't that common. And so I had to buy this book that was 300 pages long that gave you the timing of every single beat at a variety of tempos. So obviously at 60 beats per minute, you know, the very simple one. B one would be at zero time, but B two would be a second, B three would be two seconds, B four would be three seconds. And if you did that for every possible tempo, you obviously have a very large book. (laughs) And that's what we used to use before we before we did computers actually. Yeah, you're actually remembering stuff that I'm forgetting.
0: And before the personal computer roll that, uh, I think I may have seen uh, something on YouTube or something where there was a special sort of machine where, where composers could see the film go through and they could view the film. Is that correct? There's a
1: thing called a moviola, And uh, that's that's going way back when before even videotape existed, where they would used to do timings and actually would look at the film on the moviola, Or they would w- look at it on a flatbed, which is the large piece of equipment that editors used to edit film at those those days are pretty much history now i mean you you flatbeds it used to be tens of thousands of dollars i'm sure and you can now probably buy for a buck you know because nobody wants them because nobody uses them anymore they used to have sets of platters that were horizontally laid down and one viewing screen and you could cut from because when they shoot a film they usually do it with one camera they could shoot a you could have a shot of the master shot which showed the whole scene and then close-up shots and 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 reverse shots over people's shoulders, and they would cut these. They would actually cut film and edit it together on one of these machines. But that's those days are pretty much done.
0: What what is your feeling about those composers before all the modern technology? Uh, Am I right in thinking that you may feel that it is a lot easier to maybe, if not, hear better music nowadays? Certainly, synchronize is synchronizing is an easier job than way back.
1: I think the thing is is that synchronizing has become easier, but the craft of composition has has declined in my opinion because people believe that the computer can make them into film composers and so they're not learning the craft that was practiced for many years and you know it's still to this day. I mean, interestingly well, enough,
0: I, I do sorry, can I cut across you because I do want to talk about this later, but I'm I'm specifically talking about the ability to you know, in the thirties and the forties, I don't know if you know if you've I'm sure you will have looked at all of that stuff, but how people managed to do it back then with without any of the modern aids.
1: Right. They they did it using these timing tables. Those timing tables have been around for a long, long time. And before that the mathematics. I mean I think the, the timing tables was a shortcut to the mathematics where you didn't have to actually sit and calculate every the timing of every click, of every beat, but instead you could just look them up on the tables. And so that was kind of the first development as somebody went oh let's let's just make a big book of tables um, I mean I think that the reality is that high quality composition has never been dependent upon you know whether or not there was shortcuts to the technical calculations and certainly one could argue that Eric korngold and 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 his his peers were writing great music I don't think anybody would say Bernard Herman you know didn't write anywhere to his to his level of of possibilities, because he didn 't have a computer, I mean, I would point out that still to today John Williams doesn't use a sequencer, so it's uh, it's an interesting thing to think that these tools have made the music better it's made some of the jobs that, some of the tasks that are necessary to be done easier, but I don't know that it's improved the music
0: okay, so as usual i'm I'm deflecting you away from your story, hummy, sorry about that <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, these are all areas I'm sure people will find uh, really, really interesting. So, But back to Ellie, you're starting to get work. And, uh, and I remember that Bruce Willis series and uh, Moonlighting. Uh, I used to watch it every week. I was a, a big fan. Right. So uh, what happens after all of that? I take it from there, you made a lot of contacts. And would that be right to say?
1: Yeah. Certainly at that point, I started... I started being recognized as as somebody who had capability and I started wanting to, I mean, I'd always wanted to work in feature films, although it was a great gig in television and, you know, learning my craft and getting a chance to hone it in television was certainly great. And Moonlighting was a terrific show to do it on because every week, it was almost every week, it was a different style of music. We did electronic scores, we did jazz scores, we did rock scores. And much to Alf Clausen's credit, he's a very talented composer. And so I'm sure I, I learned an immense amount by watching him and being given the opportunities that he gave me. After that, I started being hired as an orchestrator conductor for other people. And one of the clients that I, that I started working with early on was a gentleman by the name of Mark Shaman, who started his career with a movie called Harry Met Sally, uh, which I did not work on. But his next film, which was um, Misery. I got called in as an orchestrator and was one of two orchestrators on the film. You know, we got on very well and, and uh, things went, went you know, very smoothly with my charts and everything. And when he got his next project, which was City Slickers, uh, I got hired to conduct and orchestrate that film.
0: In terms of when you've got more than one orchestrator, um, I was in something at arranging orchestration class in LA once. The person that was taking it mentioned that on one of the films that he had been on, there had been a big problem in terms of different orchestrators because some of the orchestrations sounded a lot better than the others. How do you manage as an uh, an orchestrator Sook ranger to ens- ensure that there's compatibility in terms of the style of orchestration between two different people?
1: That's a really interesting question. One of the things that, that it was happening when I started working with Mark was that he worked primarily at the keyboard and he was a very gifted keyboard player. And so he would give us rather detailed mock-ups of his work so that, you know, he'd have the spring parts and you have, you know, most of the stuff. And then it was more, translating it to be playable for live musicians, adding dynamics, adding articulations. On occasion, um, doing more than that, when he was under a crunch, you know, he would just give you a piano part and say, okay, you know, make it sound like this other piece of music. I never had an issue with that. I mean, I, I don't know that if it, it was just me, but one of the things that I had done, and, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of skipping over a bunch of gigs that I had in L.A., was that I became a very um, competent ghostwriter where people would call me in and say, you know, homie, I got two more cues to write for tomorrow. Can you help me out? I would have to listen to music that they wrote and write in their style. And I was very, very good at doing that. Um, you know, imitating people, kind of like, you know, those comics that can do imitations, uh, um, impersonations. I was quite good at doing that and was able to sound like other people. And I think that it has something to do with my Strangely enough, my engineering training, being able to listen to something and really suss it out and psych it out and figure out what it is that the person is doing and how he's making certain things work. Because I've always looked at, you know, I've always, there's always been part of me that looked at music that way, which is what I think has been made me successful as a teacher is the idea that, you know, when I hear something, I want to know how that's, how's he getting that sound, what it is that he's doing. And so I've always looked at music that way. And in fact, even till today, when I listen to a piece of music. The things that excite me are when people do some sort of interesting voicing or interesting instrumental combination that creates a unique and different sound. And so I'm always trying to find what those things are. So um, I, I never had an issue with that, although I did work on a couple of films where I was the lead orchestrator. And we had other orchestrators who their background was very different in terms of they were with composers who left them a lot of leeway. And so they'd have to fill in a lot of holes, let's be the nicest way to put it. And then when they were working on my team and I was the lead orchestrator, they felt that they still had to do that. And so they were adding a lot of stuff. And at least on one occasion, we had to reorchestrate some other people's work for the exact problem that you're mentioning. I don't know that there's a shorthand around that, except to say that uh, you you try to hire people who who you know, are sensitive to the way you work. That'd be the best way I could say it.
0: Again, for the listeners out there, Hummy, can you explain, because you've done both, the difference between an orchestrator and a composer and what an orchestrator can and can't do, as in stepping on a composer's toes?
1: Basically, the composer is the person who comes up with the melodic material, the melody, and the harmonic material, the chord the chord changes that are attached to it. I mean, I'll use it as an example uh, jingle bells everybody knows the piece jingle bells you could probably all sing it well somebody wrote that piece of music and wrote the wrote that melody and wrote those chord changes what an orchestrator would do is they would come in and they would decide they could decide okay i'm going to put the melody on a flute and i'm going to put the background parts on the strings and i'm going to add a triangle playing every couple of beats you know so they're they're actually adding orchestral color to what is already an existing piece of music When you're working in the film industry, most people these days are either working... Like when I'm composing, I I write on 12-line sketch paper, which means there's 12 lines of music, and those lines are divided by instrument groups. So I'll have a woodwind line, brass line, uh, well, more than one brass line, more than one woodwind line, a couple of string lines, a percussion line, and basically... I'm doing the first level of the coloring of my music. So I'm deciding when I write a melody, oh, I want that on the oboe. So that goes on the line where I can put notes that this is going to be on oboe. And if I want the accompaniment to be on the piano and the strings, and I can put that on the piano and the strings line. So I've already made certain decisions of the colorization of my piece of music. So I'm not only working as a composer, I'm also doing some orchestration as I'm going. And there are a lot of composers who believe that if you don't orchestrate your own music, you're you haven't finished the job. And there's difference of opinion on that. I think that nowadays the current trends are a lot of guys work electronically, and so they're using a string sound to represent that that'll be the strings and a woodwind sound to represent that that'll be the woodwinds. So they're kind of doing that as they're writing as well. An orchestrator's job would be to come in to make sure that those the parts that are being played are appropriate for the in- instruments that are playing them. Like you could just have a string patch on your computer that plays something that sounds like strings and it's up to the orchestrator to decide, okay, what goes on the first violins, what goes on the second violins, what goes on the violas, what goes on the cellos, et cetera, et cetera, to break it up so that an actual orchestra could play it. Also, that's not uncommon that you can do things in your sequencer that are not humanly possible for live musicians to do, such as a a melody line on the flute that doesn't have any doesn't have any breaks in it because flute players have to breathe. So sometimes orchestrators have to figure out how to solve those kinds of tricky problems that are created by people who are working on electronics. To answer your question in terms of what an orchestrator can do, basically when I'm teaching my students, I tell them that you should always put down whatever the composer has requested. So if, if the composer wrote a melody for flute and strings, you've always got to have the flute and the strings in there. But then it's up to you if you want to add an additional element with a player that's not being used at the time. So I usually use a couple of examples. There was a film that I worked on called Dying Young that James Newton Howard composed, and I was one of the orchestrators. And he wrote this very pretty theme that was being played on, I think it was played on the guitar, the melody was playing, played on the guitar. And for some weird reason, I thought it'd be a good idea to double it on the very high bassoon. And so I put the bassoon in a high register and doubled the melody. And when he heard it, he liked it so much that they went back and in other places in the score where they had used the theme with the original colorization of the guitar and the strings playing the accompaniment, he added the bassoon because he was he liked that sound so much. So that was an an example of me adding a color to an existing piece of music that the or the composer hadn't asked for, but that... I thought would be an interesting color choice. So what about what, what orchestrators cannot do? They cannot change the intent of the composition. So if something comes in and it's written for flute and strings, and all of a sudden you decide to put it on trumpet and piano, you're going to get yourself into trouble. Well,
0: what, uh, because what if they keep the original intent? Could they add other things or not?
1: They the, the rule of thumb that I tell my students is you can add something as long as it is removable with a very easy command in other words if you could say bars 12 to 14 bassoon i don't want you to play that line just circle those parts which means don't play them um so if you can get rid of this stuff in a single command i was going to give another example i worked with jerry goldsmith on the main title theme to the voyager television series and in the beginning of the voyager tv theme there is a timpani solo that Jerry wrote. And I decided that I wanted to give it more pitch definition, so I doubled it with pizzicato basses. I knew it was a part that the basses could play easily, and I put it in. And when we got to the recording session, Jerry turned to the bass players and said, basses, bars you know, 12 through 14, whatever it is, don't play those parts. I just want it to be timpani solo. And after the recording session, jerry came up to me and he said i really appreciated your idea there i think it was a really good idea but i really just wanted solo timpani so sometimes if you add something that's easily removable then it's not a problem but if you completely change, like if i had taken the timpani out and just put the bases in that would have been a change to the intent of the original composer
0: okay so one final question when you talked about the bassoon in a high register, doubling the guitar, what made you do that? Did you just hear it? Is it something that you'd heard somewhere else? What, what was your thought processes behind that? I think it had more to do with the
1: melodic content, the type of melody that, that, that was written for the movie. And I just, something about it spoke to me and said, wow, this would sound really good on the high bassoon. And the bassoon was sitting around doing nothing, so I figured, what have I got to lose? I can't
0: see any fairer than that. You are listening to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and I'm in conversation with Hollywood composer Hummy Mann. So, Hummy, as usual, I've managed to uh, take us all over the place, but uh, tell us where you were at in your career at that point.
1: So I was orchestrating and conducting for Mark Shaman, a very talented man who ended up doing city slickers and Adam's family and a few good men. Uh, I worked on many of his, of his first films. I was recommended because we were working at castle rock pictures. That's, that's where he was. He was a lot of the films that he was doing, like city slickers was from there. I got a call one day from Rob Reiner and I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody was pulling my leg. So you know, he says, how many? Hi, it's Rob Reiner. I went, Rob, how you doing? You know, I, I went along with the joke and it turns out that they actually had a film where they were not happy with the composer's score. And they asked me to come in and rescore it. And so, of course, I ran down to, the, to, to their offices and watched the film Year of the Comet, which had an original score by another composer who I will not name. But if anybody wants to look it up, I'm sure it's out there. They didn't. They were very unhappy with the score. Why? Why
0: was that, homie?
1: I think that the thing, the problem with the score was that uh, this composer had a certain style of writing, and rather than taking on this, you know, one of the things that I, again, going back to my teaching, that I always tell my students is, don't fall in love with your music. Fall in love with the way your music works with the film. And this composer had a has a very distinct style. And his style of music was bringing, being brought to the film rather than pulling something out of the film. They were not very happy. They, they felt it was not really giving the film much energy and, 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 and moving the story forward the way they wanted it to. That's, that's an interesting point,
0: that though, because if you, if you think of a composer, for example, like Michael Nyman, he's almost brought in to give the Michael Nyman sound, isn't he?
1: Well, there's different, you know, the thing is, though, is that if you compare his career to, to John Williams's career, you can see what longevity is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, is that John Williams did Catch Me If You Can, and he did Star
0: Wars. But do you accept the point that Michael Nyman does have a very, very distinct style that he doesn't seem to change, just does it?
1: <laughs> Some directors want people like that. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood does a thing where it pigeonholes you. Uh, I mean, for many years, I was thought of as the comedy composer because I'd worked with Mel Brooks. And I'll never forget, I went to New York for a meeting after I had done the miniseries In Cold Blood with Anthony Edwards and Eric Roberts. And I'm sitting across the table from a producer and he goes, oh, you write dramatic music too. Because I wrote scores to Robin Hood, Men in Tights, all of a sudden I was just labeled as a comedy. Composer.
0: Well, that's interesting because you were talking about John Williams. And I remember watching an interview with him where, Catch Me If... If you can, came up and uh, they didn't know that he could do right write jazz music.
1: Right. Well, the problem is, is that, unfortunately, a lot of composers, and I think this is becoming even more so these days, because they don't have the craft, they are somewhat limited. Whereas, you know, a lot of the people years earlier had a lot of different capabilities. And I think that that has to do with, you know, education, experience, things of that sort. I mean, if you come from you know, the school of self taught, you're probably going to have a limited background only because you've never been pushed into a situation where you have to do other stuff. I mean, anybody who's a professional player, for instance, if you you as a professional guitarist, you know that you know there's going to be times when you pull out your jazz chops and play of times you're going to pull out your country chops and sometimes you're going to pull out your rock and roll chops. But if you were just a self-play, self-trained musician, you would never have explored those other options, you know. And the fact is, is that only professionals that are put into situations where they have to do a lot of different things, ever develop those capabilities. That's not to say that, you know, Michael Nyman isn't a talented guy. Would you hire him to do a big action score? Probably not. So here we are, Year of the Comet. So Year of the Comet came along. I'm, I'm watching the film, and it's fairly obvious to me what's wrong with the score. And at the end of the meeting, because at that point I had been mostly known as a conductor and orchestrator for Mark Shaman, they decided, uh, Rob Reiner says, so we're thinking about buying something by the chieftains that we could use as a main theme. And my heart sank into the ground because I really wanted to be breaking loose and working with other people's music and writing my own music. So I basically told them, give me the weekend. Let me go write a theme. If you don't like my theme, then you can always license something from the chieftains on Monday. You know, but if you like my theme, you'll probably save yourself some money. What I did is I left the meeting. Immediately ran to the record store, bought every CD that I could buy by the Chieftains, and I sat there listening for hours to try to figure out what their sound was. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I was pretty good at, at, at kind of copying things. I wasn't trying to write truly authentic Celtic music because that would be, I, I'm, I wouldn't be the guy they would hire. But what I did know is that I had to write film music, which meant that it had to be malleable enough to do other things in the film besides just sound Celtic. And so, those requirements of writing it had to have the flavor of Celtic music, but it really needed to be film music. And I think that there's a big distinction there. A lot of people like to go for you know authenticity, but the reality is that film musicians, just like actors, film composers, just like actors, become the role. And so they know what has to go into the role. You know, it's like. If somebody's going to be a German on camera, you don't necessarily only hire somebody who's German. You hire somebody who's an actor who can put on a German accent. And the same thing goes for film music, in my opinion. I wrote this theme, and I was still a little bit concerned that I might be insulting the Celtic musicians because they certainly didn't want that to happen. So I, hired, I found somebody in, in Los Angeles who was a Celtic musician who I paid a fee to come and listen to my piece and let me know if I was in the ballpark. And I was given the, okay, yeah, you're pretty darn close. She said, you know, there were a couple things that were, that were not, there's a syncopated rhythm that happens in the middle of year of the Comet that certainly is not, was not part of the Celtic tradition. Now with, you know, current Celtic music, they do that kind of stuff, but, but not more traditional folk Celtic music. I used instrumentation that I felt was going to make it feel Celtic, uh, uh, a penny whistle, hammered dulcimer, and a bodron, and, uh, but with an orchestral background. Anyway, I did a, I did a mock-up demo using my synthesizers and keyboards, and on Monday delivered two main themes to to Peter Yates, who was the director, and Rob Reiner, who was the producer. They loved them, and I was able to write the score based upon my own themes. So, Hummy, that was very, very interesting
0: stuff, how you managed to do that. Within it, I'm sure the listeners would be quite interested. You mentioned something about the malleability of a theme can you briefly
1: just explain what you meant by that? Sure. Basically, when you're, writing a th- when you're writing a theme for a film, the most common thing is that the theme would be attached to a character or a situation or a place. In this case, the main theme of Year of the Comet is Maggie's theme. It not only had to work as a beginning of an exciting journey, because that's basically what happens in this movie, place us in the location of Scotland, but also the other thing is that at some point in the movie, she falls in love. And so this theme had to also work as a love theme. And if you listen to a well-written film score, it's basically a, what we call themes and variations, which is a classical term. But in this case, they're dramatic variations. So the, you know if you have a character who has a happy day and then a sad day, you would play the same theme, but you would have a different variation, one that would have a happy feel and one that would have a sad feel. And basically when you're writing your themes, you have to make sure that they're malleable enough to follow whatever emotions the character, if it's a character theme, is going through. So a really good example that I, uh, that I usually give my students is, let's say that you have a character in a movie who's a politician during the day, but at nighttime he's a serial killer. You wouldn't want a completely uh, different... Not, not that that's an
0: extreme, or is there a difference? Uh, maybe not.
1: <laughs> no comment. Um, but, uh, you know, you would have the same thematic piece of material but colored completely differently, different instrumentation, different tempo, uh, different chords, chord uh, progression, uh, different what we call texture, the the, the accompaniment surrounding it. Um, and if you in fact, if you watch the opening of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's about a 10 minute segment from when Indiana Jones is running from the the uh, aboriginal soldiers until he actually leaves on the airplane. To, but he's traveling to go, in, to go on his journey, and there's five different variations of the Indiana Jones theme, the one we all know and love.
0: Well, I, I know from having studied your music and actually having taught students a little about writing for film, that from your music, a great example of that, and it's it's in all your music, but specifically is P.T. Barnum.
1: Ah, uh, yes. P.T. Barnum has, has more variations of one theme than anything I've ever done, because He's in basically every single scene of the movie and he's going through every single emotion from exhilaration when he opens his museum to uh, to desperation when he loses his wife and he dies at the end. And, and, what, and what
0: you're doing there is you're taking the, the melody, as you said, and you're changing it. Is that correct? The,
1: you ch- the, the thing that you change the least is the melody. You can take some variations on it. But it has to be identifiable because if it's not identifiable, then it's not really doing its job. It's, it's kind of like you, if you're going to support a character, you want to support it with a theme that is actually related to the character. And so that has to be something that's fairly obvious. But you can, by changing the tempo, by making it from major to minor, you can change. And, and I'm, I'm giving you really black and white examples here. You know, but if, you, if you take something that's very fast and play it quite a bit slower... And that makes it more somber. And if you change it from major chords to minor chords, it makes it even more somber. And there's a lot of other tools that we can use to change the character of a piece of music.
0: So in a sense, you can manipulate the audience's uh, reactions to the movies or characters based on the music you
1: write. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I don't know if I want to call it manipulation, but you can certainly enhance the emotional impact of the film.
0: So, so could you maybe make someone feel something about someone before you even know that they're a serial killer
1: oh absolutely i mean one of the things that's interesting is like as an example that we talk about in scoring a film it's most of the time you're enhancing what is going on on camera so you know if there's a romantic scene you want to make it more romantic if there's an action scene you want to make it more exciting if there's a scary scene you want to make it more dangerous one of the things that you can do with music that's really interesting is let's say that there's a character on screen, this politician we just spoke about earlier, <laughs> you know, and he's making a speech, but the, the director wants the audience to question whether what he's saying is true. You can score it in such a way that you put a question mark into the fact that the performance does not have. The performance uh, on camera is just this politician saying things and just, you know, saying whatever it is he wants to say, but the director needs the audience to know that there could be some untruths being told. And in doing that, uh, you can certainly do that with music. Fascinating stuff.
0: You're listening to GMI, Guitar Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocke, and I'm in conversation with Man. This uh, podcast is available on iTunes and all other good podcast outlets. So Hummy, let's get back to the year of the comet. What happened when that was released
1: then? The film was released and unfortunately uh, came out a few days before the Los Angeles riots. In In fact, it was almost 25 years ago. It was just over 25 years ago this week or last week. The movie, unfortunately, was not a very big success because nobody went to the theaters that week. I mean, you know, one of the things about the film business that's always iffy is that if you release a film... And there's a blizzard that weekend. The, the movie could be a great movie and nobody will go see it because they can't get to the theaters and therefore it's considered a box office flop. The thing about that was good about Year of the Comet was that I was able to get a soundtrack album released and the soundtrack album did very well. The score was nominated in the UK, some some awards organization. I was nominated as best newcomer of the year and Year of the Comet was, was nominated as best uh, film's best dramatic score of the
0: year it is a it is a beautiful
1: score it
0: is absolutely lovely
1: well, thank you. The soundtrack album did quite well, sold quite well, and kind of became a great calling card for my for my future work
0: so how how did that then impact on your career because you've now scored your first film, and maybe it would be different today when so much is released digitally and all the rest of it where do you think that might be the case in today's environment?
1: I don't you know it's hard to say. I mean, I know that the soundtrack album is still available. It's hard to find a CD version of it, but it's, you know, it's, I think you can get it on iTunes.
0: I mean in terms of a film's release, you know, something terrible's happening, but it's not impacted because people are on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the rest of it.
1: There seems to be this thing in Los, in 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 the United States that a movie to be considered a hit seems to be it has to make a hundred million dollars in the United States um, year of the comma was, was released on over a thousand theater in over a thousand theaters when it opened but again everybody was staying at home watching people rioting on television it was a very unfortunate timing and you know certainly I feel bad about the riots and that you know so I'm not even comparing my the loss of my you know the opening of my film to the LA riots because that would be ridiculous um, but it certainly did have an impact and uh, the movie has gone on and been rented a lot its it's it's it goes into rotation every few years high rotation on some cable station. I understand that actually i just found out last week that it's being released on d v d so you know it, it continues to have a life
0: and and yeah, there's some fantastic actors in there as well in fact the the main lead actor uh was born. Just a stone's throw from where I am now sitting and went to the local primary school here and secondary school and then went to the same, uh, Ian Richardson went to the same secondary school for the last few years. So a lot of, uh, a lot of connections there. So anyway. Who's that? That was Ian Richardson, the father of Maggie. Oh, no kidding. He actually was Scottish. He's from Edinburgh and was literally born just down the
1: road. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, because it was Tip Daly and Penelope Ann Miller were the main stars, and then, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what happened next then, homie? Uh, when
1: did they all start knocking on your door? So years ago, of happened, I got CDs, sent them to everybody that I know. It was a little bit of a, um, a Hollywood tale because I had replaced this other composer who had won eight Academy Awards, and so uh, that was a pretty big deal. One of the big things that happened with getting Year of the Comet is that I got signed to a major uh, talent agency and that certainly helped things. Trying to think of what the next chronology was. I mean, I think that the next important chronology was, uh, I continued working with Mark Shaman as, a, as an orchestrator conductor. Rob Reiner, I was recommended to do a TV series for Castle Rock and, and it was a TV series that Christopher Guest was directing. And uh, that was guitar player from Spanel Tap. Exactly, exactly. And of course, he had all of his buddies—Harry Shearer, Michael McKean—they were all on the show. So I was working. You know, Christopher Guest was creating this series with Rob Reiner, and Rob Reiner would talk about how they had found this vault with these old films, these Hollywood films that they had lost, and they were all these old buddy movies, kind of like the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope buddy movies. On the Road series. Exactly, exactly like that. You know, they did all the classic things where the, uh, the, you know, these two guys would be shipwrecked and wash up on a beach. And the natives would find them and boil them in a pot of water to give them, uh, you know, as a as an offering to the god Ulu. So, so it wasn't stereotypical
0: in any sense.
1: No, <laughs> it was it was poking fun or paying homage would probably be the better thing. Do a lot of these, you know, types of films that were going on, and I got to do all kinds of crazy, wacky stuff and write these silly songs. Like it turns out, of course, that the chief's daughter was was uh, educated in the United States, and she started singing this sultry, sexy song called Ulu about offering this, these guys up as, a, as an offering to Ulu in order to get good crops. How convenient. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, the beautiful daughter of the, of the, of the tribal chief. Anyway, so I was working with, with uh, still doing some work with Mark Shaman, doing work at Castle Rock, and um, through a series of events, one of the producers got hired to produce Robin Hood Men in Tights. Mel was looking for a, 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 a composer. Uh, he would had a long history uh, with another composer that he would worked with pretty much exclusively. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, um, was making a change. I, maybe I was cheaper. I, I really don't know <laughs> what the deal was. So I was recommended to score Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I remember going to meet with Mel Brooks. He was auditioning me. He wanted me to write some themes for him. And somebody had recommended that if I put lyrics to my themes, that I would have a better shot at selling them to Mel. And I don't remember who told me this, but I remember writing the first line or two of the first stanza, I guess, uh, first line or two of uh, the Marion song before I met with Mel. And he loved the song. And so that song became part of the script. It was never it was never in the script. And, uh, you know, and then I wrote the fanfare, a couple of other themes, and Mel liked everything, and he hired me to do the score. And that was kind of my first big major film. I mean, you know, Year of the Comet was certainly a major project from Castle Rock, and it wasn't a small film by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, working with a legend like Mel Brooks was certainly, I mean, nerve-wracking at the beginning and and, and a huge honor. And,
0: and what was it like working with someone like mel brooks
1: you know he's a, he's a very demanding person i mean um but i have to say that he gave me a lot of leeway i mean i think that part of it was that there were a couple of songs in the movie there was the marion song there was the men in tights song there was the, the, the rap numbers that happened in the song and the night is young which is was a song that i did not write and so all of those. You know, he he got to work with me in pre-production and see, see that I was knew what I was doing. I mean, one of the things that we did mention is that one of the jobs that I did at Castle Rock, even on Mark Shaman films, was whenever they would do a pre-record, which is when you're um, when you have somebody singing or dancing on camera, you have to record that before the film is shot, and then people will lip sync and uh, or you know have the music to dance to, and the reason you do that is because you want to be able to shoot from different angles and make sure that all everything can be cut together and lock uh, tempo wise. Yeah. So I was, I was involved in doing all of that stuff on Mark Shaman films. So I had a lot of experience doing that. And also in, in well in Cold Blood which came later in Robin Hood Men in Tights, I was working with Mel up front to do all of these songs, these production songs. And I was on the set to make sure that people were lip syncing well. And so we were working hand in hand. I don't remember. He was, you know, he was busy cutting the film when I was writing the score. It was a great experience for me. I mean, obviously, a couple of the funny stories were uh, Mel said, uh, you have to use an 88-piece orchestra. And I said, why an 88-piece orchestra, Mel? And he said, because there's 88 keys on the piano. (laughs) You know, so I I didn't know if he was kidding me or not, but, (laughs) you know, we had an 88-piece orchestra
0: from that you went on to score another Mel Brooks film.
1: Yeah, I did his last two pictures, which are Robin Hood Men in Tights and Dracula Dead and Loving It. And Dracula Dead and Loving It starring Leslie Nielsen, which uh, was was not a particularly successful film in the United States but did very well overseas. Strangely enough in Italy, it was the number 1 film in Italy for 4 weeks. Wow. If I'm if I if I recall correctly, it like beat out Schindler's List, which is like really you know, for a film that was not as successful in the United States, um, I, I've often wondered if the uh, Italian dubbers, you know, had changed lines or something that made it, <laughs> made, it made it more funny for the Italian audiences. Uh, it's funny because now, years later, I'll use segments of the film in my classes, <clears throat> and I th- they're terrifically funny. I, I don't know why. You know, American audiences didn't find it as amusing when it first came out.
0: What was the big difference between scoring a horror movie, albeit a comedy one, and Robin Hood? Was there big differences?
1: Well, the thing that's interesting is that, you know, there's two main ways of scoring a comedy. One is writing funny music. You know, as you've all heard, somebody falls down the stairs and go, wah, 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 wah. And then there's playing the, mu- the movie as serious as possible and not writing funny music and letting the comedy play against it. And in both of those cases, both in Robin Hood and Dracula, I took the second approach. I mean, if you listen to the scores of Robin Hood, Mennonites in and Dracula, and then Olivia, neither of them have funny sounding scores. What kind of makes the humor between the score and the music is the way that the music synchronizes the, to the film. Sometimes we do a thing called Mickey Mousing, where there's you know an action uh, it, it was based upon the, the technique that was used for scoring, you know, Mickey Mouse in animated films where an animated character might be walking. And instead of putting in footsteps, you put a beat of music on every footstep. Dum, 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 you know, and then they don't, you know, because animated characters don't make any noise. And so that's called Mickey Mouse. And so sometimes you'll do things where you'll take a live action film and Mickey Mouse something in some element of it. And that by itself makes it funny. So, in a sense, so, your music was the straight man. Exactly. My music was the straight man. And if you listen to Dracula, Den and or Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and in both of those cases, what I would say is that before I took on either of those projects, I remember when I got assigned Robin Hood, Men in Tights, I went out and rented or bought every single Robin Hood movie that had ever been made and watched them to find out what everybody's, you know, everybody's take on it was. And I did the same thing with Dracula. I mean, because they're both genre films, there's, there's, there's lots of history in terms of how people have approached them before. And so, although I had to put my own twist on it and come up with my own thematic material, there was definitely guidelines.
0: In the fourth and final episode of the Hummyman podcast interviews, Hummy will be talking more about Hollywood and film scoring, but also discussing how he created one of the finest film scoring programs in the world. So that isn't to be missed. We look forward to having your company on that next episode. If you enjoy the work we do here at GMI, please consider our Patreon page. There is a link on the GMI, that's guitarmusicinstitute.com website, in this particular episode. My name is Jed Brocke. I look forward to having your company again on the next episode.